Yes, thank you guys for letting me be here again. I do uh, appreciate the opportunity to be able to share God's Word whenever we can do that. And uh, I think uh, you used to call this uh, springing forward. Well, I think it really fits with (laughs) the January Bible study. (laughs) Anyway... um, one day we'll we'll be into the spring. You know, I came, we came from the south, way down south, and we didn't get any snow. We got up here and we started coming north, and then we headed west. And the next thing I know, we started seeing this white stuff. How much did you guys get? Uh, not much. A couple of inches. Oh, okay. All right. Well, wow. eight, eight inches of Sedalia or so worth it. Yeah. We had no problem whatsoever coming this morning. Church was. You didn't call off church or anything? Oh, no. No sickness at all. Did all you guys make it or did you use excuses? Ah, the snow. No. <laughs> we, we had the cars set outside and you had to get something to break the ice so you get the doors open. Oh, really? It was, so there was a lot of freezing rain then, I guess, huh? Yeah. Huh. So you guys got a lot worse than, than we did. We just had rain the whole time. That's all it was. So, But there was a line, a fine line that, that went all the way up from the south to the north. And we and Jeff City and Taos were just a touch from there. Uh, some people came from our church, and they had snow on uh, their car this morning. And they live in St. Martin's, which is just a few miles outside of Jeff City, west of there. So that line was right there, and it went on through. Interesting. Kind of funny how it works, but anyway, you know, this is an interesting thing here. This really matches up with what we're talking about tonight. Unearthing what I believe and why it matters. Dug down deep into the truth. I like that title. And that's really what it is. It's it's truth of the Word of God. And if you have that, no matter what comes up, up against what the truth is, if you're in deep in that and you have that roots, you'll never be mowed down. But this looks really good. Thank you a lot, Dennis, for uh, letting me uh, check this out. <laughs> I better give this back. I'm going to be ordering this tomorrow. That one got past me. I know how I missed it. It's Multnomah. Multnomah is our, that's a different kind of company. They, uh, anyway, why don't we get started because these nights go by so quick. And, uh, you know, since we're talking about truth there... How about some of these things? See what you think of these. Somebody comes in here with some of these statements like me and uh, just test me out here. This is all about testing, First John is. There are three tests. One of them is dealing with truth or doctrine. Oh, by the way, that William Cowper Cooper, he stayed with John Newton for a little while at one time. Uh, Newton took him in, didn't he? As, as you, you were singing, I'm going, wait a minute. Because he, he was depressed. Newton, And, of course, Newton is the one who wrote Amazing Grace. And you have this famous hymn here. There are some hymn writers back there in those little bitty churches. Fascinating, isn't it? Great hymn writers. Okay, well, here's some strange things we're bringing in here to the church tonight. See what you think. Let's test these out. There's no turning from sin... Uh, uh, there, no turning from sin is required for salvation. I'm going to keep on going here. Here are a few of these statements. Uh, n- now, now take it, n- take it for granted. <laughs> I want you to realize that I'm just making some statements. Some top leading evangelicals have stated that are well respected, have written books, taught seminaries. Okay. Here's another one. I'm not saying these. 
Good thing, or with the Yeah, she ought to get me out of here right now. <laughs> I'm qualifying this. Dennis, who are you bringing in here to be speaking to us? Yeah. Uh, Christians can completely cease believing and therefore can commit the ongoing great sin of willful unbelief and still be a Christian. Here's another one. Christians can lap into a state of permanent spiritual barrenness. Here's another one. Christians may fall into a state of lifelong carnality, born-again people who continuously live like the unsaved. Disobedience and prolonged sin are no reason to doubt one's salvation. All right, I'm going to stop there for a little bit. Uh, these are bothersome. They're very troublesome. These are for some people who have written books, like I say, professors in seminaries that were from conservative seminaries, and now in the evangelical realm, some of these statements were made back in the 80s. Um, John MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus, which I think was a very good book attacking some of these thoughts. Uh, the Gospel According to the Apostles also was written by him, and it was based upon some of the teachings that were come out of, of all places. A place that I respected at one time, back in the 70s anyway, called Dallas Theological Seminary. And you can see how things can get muddied up and the next thing you know, watered down, and then we have a different doctrine. Strange how that happens. Well, First John was written to counter those kind of arguments. Now, that's in our time. And I'm sure that if that was back in the 80s, I wonder what's going on now with postmodernism. Well, probably worse, I would say. But the main, one of the major things here in First John is truth, isn't it? Truth. And we want to be dug down deep into that. So it seems like if truth is relative, like a lot of people like to say, uh, or it doesn't exist, like a lot of people would say, as really first John, uh, John is writing anything, then, then there's really not anything that really means anything. Uh, it's meaningless. Or anything means everything. So, you know, there's... There's something here that's uh, a problem. If there is truth, there is truth. If there is truth, then it's possible to separate truth from error. If there's truth over here, and this is not truth, we have error. And um, so we, we, we have to challenge that. Uh, right off the bat, John in 1 John said, God is light. That's one of the statements that he made. Black and white, truth, just absolute truth. God is light. Then he said, those who trust in Him, those who are His followers, live like He does. In the sense that uh, we have to walk in His light. Granted, we are going to have sin. God does not sin. But at the same time, we walk in His light. Um, he also uh, denied that one can know God and still walk in darkness. That's what some of the pre-Gnostic teaching was going at. Another thing is uh, he denied that, uh, uh, that sin in a person can be totally eradicated and not ever have sin again. And so he argued up against that. And so he's denying some of these things that they're bringing forth. Another one that they said is that some of them never sinned. Never had sinned. And of course he counters that with the truth of the Word of God. What he also did in the first chapter is that he called people to holiness, to holy living. And uh, the Gnostic type heresy was saying, hey, you can be a Christian and you can live 
any way you want. It doesn't matter because that's a flesh and that's a material thing and so therefore it doesn't, uh, doesn't heat anything. It's okay. You can do whatever you want. Uh, the next week then, the second week, which is last week, we dealt with the three tests. And that would be dealing with righteousness, which uh, is uh, very important that we live out the Christian life. The next one is love. That was the second test we looked at. And then the third test was truth. So righteousness, love, and truth. All throughout 1 John, that's really what we're going to be interweaving in. We will see that we have uh, a doctrine of... um, or or truth is dealing with doctrine. Love would be dealing with um, the social aspect. That's the social test. And uh, then righteousness is dealing with the moral test. How one lives it out. So the first one we're going to look at today, we're going to look at three these three tests again. It's going to be a lot like what we looked at last week, only slightly a different angle. So John is going to take contrast now, and he will take righteousness versus sin. You have righteousness here, you have sin here. He's going to work with that particular test. Then he'll deal with love and hate, and then he'll do uh, truth and error uh, from uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Through four, through uh, verse six. So the contrast is uh, what he will hit with. Uh, why don't we take verse four and read that? Chapter three, verse four. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins. And in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. So back and forth, He keeps showing the the contrast. Some of those statements that I made earlier, well, here are some more. Let's let's see if uh, some of these are almost the same thing that John had to counter. A believer may utterly forsake Christ, come to the point of not believing, but God is guaranteed that He will not disown those who thus abandon the truth. Here's another one. Repentance is not essential to the gospel. In no sense is repentance related to salvation. These are coming from guys who are were not considered liberals. But that's Zane Hodge. Zane Hodge. And even, I hate to say it, even Charles Ryrie was in on some of this too, who wrote the Ryrie Study Bible, who wrote a systematic theology. Uh, for a lot of the things that he had, I would absolutely say, hey, he was right on. Very well respected. But for some reason, they had to come up with some statements because the Lordship salvation had come up again, which it does every few decades. It means Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, and if He's Lord of your life, it's not a matter of works, but it's a matter of what, who He is to your life. And uh, so, so to uh, I guess justify some of the things that people that they knew, maybe fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, who had walked down the aisle, signed a card, said a prayer, said they were Christians. Well, absolutely, they must be Christians. It doesn't matter how they live. They're Christians because they said something at one time, made a profession, so everything's okay. Uh, Here's another one. Spiritual fruit is not guaranteed in the Christian life. 
Some Christians spend their lives in a barren wasteland of defeat, confusion, and every kind of evil. Every kind of evil. Nothing guarantees that a true Christian will love God. Salvation does not necessarily even place the sinner in a right relationship with God. Salvation does not necessarily even place the sinner in a right relationship with God. What is justification about it? Isn't this incredible? We're not talking about the liberal theologians that we'd automatically think of here. Genuine believers might even cease to name the name of Christ or confess Christianity at all. How in the world would biblical scholars like this have these kind of quotes and sell it out there, write books challenging uh, books like what MacArthur had put out, and then companies like Zondervan who had both of those and pit them up together with each other. Hey, we can make some money off this. I don't know how any publisher could make books and say it's okay to put that out. But... uh, Repentance is not necessary. Obedience is not necessary. Righteousness is not necessary. No turning from sin. No spiritual fruit. First John says a lot about these kind of things, doesn't it? Let's uh, look at verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's a good definition of sin. Uh, this deals with the nature of sin. Uh, I think it's a very accurate definition of it. If you were to go to the Westminster Confession, there's a good definition there, but I think this one is even better. <laughs> right here in verse John, it's scriptural. But the, the catechism, Westminster Catechism is good here. It says, Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Correct? Absolute, right? Here, um, John just says it, it's profound. Sin is the spirit of lawlessness, is what it, what it amounts to. Sin is lawlessness. And um, the whole idea of rebellion, that's, that's what's involved here. So sin is the desire to have my own way. Sin wants to do whatever it does. Remember in Isaiah 53, 6, that um, great messianic passage, one of the great passages in all the Bible about uh, Christ, Messiah dying on the cross really is what it amounts to. But... Uh, dealing with substitutionary atonement. And in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We turned our own way. We do our own thing. That's a nature uh, of, of man. That's what sin is about. We were once lawless, weren't we? Before uh, Christ brought us into the family of God, we were uh, in the same way. That was our nature. It's just being opposed to the very will of God. Not even really thinking too much about just trying to sin or go against God. It's just being uh, in in a situation where whatever the will of God is, whether you know it or not, you want to do things on your your own way. And so uh, there's ways like that. Uh, People want to minimize how serious sin can be. John doesn't let anybody get away with that. And uh, so he's challenging the people who had even come into the church. My goodness, they were coming in there saying the same things of uh, the statements that we were just reading that were false uh, earlier there. Uh, the Gnostics, they uh, misunder, uh, I guess, underestimated what sin was. And they excused it. 
They didn't want to think that there was any such thing as sin. And so John says, I'm not letting you get away with that. And we cannot coexist with this kind of thought. And so um, he points out that if you have an habitual sin, something that carries on, and that's constant, and it's not broken, then you're not a believer. That's <laughs> just the way that John is putting it. Whoever commits sin, and that's the idea of committing, it, it's an idea of habitual, constant, ongoing sin. Whoever commits that sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, as he says there in uh, verse 4. Then you get into verse 5. That, that's one thing about sin. It, it does not coexist with God's law, as John, John is saying there. Now, the next thing it does not coexist with or be compatible with is the work of Christ, as he states in 5 through 7 here. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. You catch what's happening there? They are celebrating the fact that, hey, sin doesn't matter, it's okay. He comes along and says, no, that, that goes against the grain of what Christ did. Christ was here to take it away, to expiate it, uh, to put it out. So, uh, we could say that Christ broke the power of sin, didn't he? It was broken. We know that we still battle with sin, but, but it's broken up now. And uh, we don't live a constant life in sin, and we hate it. It's the nature of Christ to take away sin. Uh, reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 there. Talking about us being ambassadors in that text. And then in 21 he says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he took on the sin, didn't he? He took our sin, put it on him. Of course, the righteousness was also then put on us. So that goes against the grain of what Christ was about. How about the uh, the famous... Uh, passage dealing with husband and wife in Ephesians 5, 25-27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her that He might sanctify and cleanse her, that He had set her apart, cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So holiness is, is really what the church is about. Can you imagine all this stuff that is just totally opposite that was coming in right in the first century there? And John has to say, whoa, wait a minute. This is not true at all. I know about this sin stuff. Uh, anyway, verse 6. Whoever abides in Him. Now he's talked about Christ and His work. And he says, whoever abides in Him, that word abide means to, uh, to live in to remain, to, to stick around. If one does not abide, then he's going to show he does not have Christ in his life. He, it, whoever abides in him, though, does not sin. He does not practice it. Does not have an ongoing sin pattern in his life. But then the other statement, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So it makes it very obvious. They're not a believer. Now, if you were to say that today, that would probably be politically incorrect. That person is not a believer. Well, why would you say that? Well, for one thing, they don't confess their sin. They don't confess that Jesus is Lord. They don't confess that Jesus is God. I can say right there, that person is not a Christian. How can you say that? You can't make those kind of judgments. Yeah, we can, can't we? 
Because the Word of God says that person is not a Christian. John would have said that. If they're not confessing the right things that are obvious, now there are other things that we don't know about certain people we can't make judgments on, but whenever we know that they're making these statements, we have to call them on what they are. Uh, they need they need the gospel. <laughs> they need the truth. Verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Evidently, it was happening, wasn't it? They're deceiving you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. If you practice righteous, if that's part of your life, then you are righteous, just as he is righteous. But he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning... For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, again, shown forth, that He might destroy the works of the devil. So here's another reason that John puts up here. These are some really good um, defenses of the faith here in showing why these people are not believers and why the ones who are, are. Sin does not go along with the fact that Christ destroyed the works of the devil. He did it at the cross. Now granted, we know that Satan who had the fall from heaven, that's where the beginning would be there. We know before that he did not sin, did he? He was a perfect creature, but then he fell and that would be the beginning there of that sinful aspect of Satan and his very nature. But when Christ came... He broke the power of sin. He also showed that Satan no longer has tyranny over us if if we're Christians. The rest of the world, though, lies in the lap of the wicked. John will say later at the end of the book. But as far as Christians are concerned, we're not underneath His reign and rule, are we? That's been broken. So when Christ returns, though, then that will bring to fulfillment Eventually, Satan will be thrown uh, into hell. And we see that in the book of Revelation. Uh, Go back there. Revelation 20, verse 10. We know he's already been beaten. Christ will come back to make that claim, won't he? But it's already been done. Verse uh, 10, 2010. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So because Christ already beat the devil at the cross, then that would be another good reason that sin does not, uh, is not compatible at all with Christianity. Those works have been destroyed. Another one is is the Holy Spirit John brings in. Boy, he has a lot of good reasons here. Um, What does verse 9 say? Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Uh, This is speaking of the very nature of God. We as Christians know that we now have a new nature. Um, I can think of 1 Peter that says that we have the nature of God in us. We are not little gods, but at the same time, we now have uh, Him residing in us through who? The Holy Spirit. And because of the Word of God, that that, uh, also being the seed that was planted in us, but we're born again, and this uh, this very truth, uh, 
converts us into being new creatures, have a new nature. Our habitual characteristic now is not to sin. That's our character. That's our nature. We don't want to sin. Matter of fact, we hate sin. And anything that we do, we are convicted by it. And that's a, isn't that a gift? Repentance? That's not something that we work up. It's something that God gives us. How about confession? 1 John 1. When we look at verse 9, talking about confession, that's a gift. It's their, their graces. God has just granted us uh, a way to be cleansed. And I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin, so we go and confess because that guilt is hanging there, but He says we can take it to Him, and it's like going to the labor, like the priests did. Once they did the altar of sacrifice, the next step that they would go would be to the labor to be cleansed. They would cleanse the blood off themselves on their hands, their dirt off their feet, and go and do the rest of the serving work right into the tent of the tabernacle to the altar of incense. But as, as they would come out and do more sacrifices, again, they would have to continually cleanse themselves of that labor. Our, our cleansing is the Word of God, our confession, having that relationship with Him. So sin does not uh, become a practice of a believer, does it? It can't. Do you think John has built up a very good defense here? Incredibly tight, isn't it? It's sound. Now, the summary is found in verse 10 here. He just takes... And adds everything up, and he says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. It's seen. The curtain is drawn back. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Well, that's simple, isn't it? Nor is he who does not love his brother. Now that's going to lead us into the next section. That makes sense. And so he's going to get us right into the next test. True children of God show that they are true by the, the lives they live. Uh, if we're in that family, our nature's been changed. Uh, we are of God. We show we belong to God. We have evidence. Sometimes we may not look so good, but His nature is still in us. We, we are children of God. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book dealing with religious affections. That's an all-time classic. Uh, and that book is actually easy to read. and It makes so much sense, though. But it was for holy affections. He had a zeal for that, to live a righteous and holy life, a zeal for holiness. And he said a conversion takes place. You have a new nature. And when you have a new nature, you have a passion for holiness. And when you have this passion for holiness, you, you know that you have been regenerated. It's a work of God. You desire to be like Him. And He puts that in, into you to do that. You're saved permanently. And now, because of that, it's going to show up in your life because you are reflecting Him. Uh, there's another view that comes along. That's, that's a Reformation Reformed theology belief. Uh, there's an Arminian belief or, the, or a Wesleyan view that is called a temporary nature of regeneration. You ever heard of that? It means you have a temporary nature because you could turn against God and walk the other way. Because you made the choice to turn against Him, even as being a Christian. So your salvation is not necessarily forever. You can lose it. And of course, John is all over the place on that one too, isn't he? <laughs> He's gotten to that and he'll get it to, to that again. But um, there's either a permanent salvation that has a permanent manifestation and you live that out. Or the other doctrine says there's a temporary salvation. 
with a temporary manifestation. I like that permanent salvation. For one thing, my, I, I like to hear that as being a Christian, but it's truth. It's in the Scripture so much of the time. That's what Dennis has been doing with on the, uh, on the Facebook, on the Reformed Christians Dialogue, where one gentleman said you could lose your salvation as he was taking passages and using them out of context to try to support his, his belief system, uh, which would then really a Wesleyan view. Whether he's Wesleyan or not, I don't know, but that's really what it is. So, so all your works are going to matter in, in that view, but they stress it so much, and not so much grace, although grace would be believed on, but it's your performance and what you do is what counts. And it's still on what God, what you do counts, but it's based upon all of grace and on God working in you. How about the children of the devil? Well, their nature has not been changed, John is saying here. If your nature's never been changed, then you're of the devil. You have the same nature that you had. So John has this first test. The first test is what? Righteousness. Versus what? Sin. And he's showing that the Gnostic teachers are unbelievers. I think John just comes right out there and says it. He, I don't think he's politically correct back there at the end of the first century. But he was definitely biblically correct, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's one, uh, one test. That's the moral test. Now the second test we, we looked at last week also. And this is dealing with love. This would be the, um, the, the social test. Love and hate. Do you love your neighbor? Christian or not? You know. uh, what we're going to do here, first of all, is look at the characteristics of hate. Now, he's going to go back and forth here, hate and love, through the section of 11 through 24. Uh, but uh, let's start at verse 12. Actually, uh, verse 11. And in verse 10, right at the end of it, he already introduced it. But he didn't set the numbers here, did he? <laughs> On, uh, as far as the verses are concerned. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. Here we go. And he uses an example. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Well, because his works were evil. And his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren... If the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts, shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So the second test is, okay, you're a Christian. Do you love your brother, sister? Do you, do you love people? Well, the first one that he uses, and he goes to an extreme, what's the highest manifestation of hate? How far can it go? What's the worst? Murder. Murder. And he goes right to the very heart of the issue. Okay? Murder is the ultimate expression. Cain was a child of the devil. And we know that Satan, according to John 8.44, 
is what? The father of lies. He's a father of murder. Is he not? That That is uh, his nature. There's a hard attitude here that I think John is probably getting to too. His actions showed where his heart really was at uh, dealing with Cain. By the way, you know, this is, I think, the first time, uh, probably the only time that John uses a person's name in here as he's bringing forth uh, these contrasts all through 1 John. He uses Cain, though, at this time. Because we all know him. We all know Cain I mean, and what he did. Uh, he expressed what was right in his heart. And I think he's also saying, you're a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised because the same heart attitude, the Cain attitude, it is in the unbelieving world. Not everybody in the unbelieving world commits the act of murder, but what can be in the heart is murder. And it's, it's natural for them to do that. I think Cain would be a prototype that, that sets everything up of the world. The spiritual seed of Cain continued on in all the other people of un, the unbelieving world and uh, they hate and they even persecute the people of God. The spiritual progeny of Abel. If Cain can kill his own brother Abel when... <laughs> I mean, at the time, uh, how many was in the family? Well, we're not told, are we? But he kills his own brother. I mean, that's unbelievable. And that same attitude goes right on forth. So I think that's why John would say this in verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We shouldn't be surprised. I think Jesus said something like that too, didn't he? And we know that in this world, you will be persecuted. I wonder if we keep addressing that, let's say abortion is wrong, it's evil, and it's wicked, and it's against God's law, how much that might impact the government to say, we need to do something with people who are getting a little bit mouthy. You know, we want to do our abortion thing. We want to do other things, and they're making it a little bit hard for us. Let's just shut them up. Who knows? But we shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, the next one is found in verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, all he says here, he's not talking about the act, he's just saying whoever hates his brother. Now he's getting into the point of saying it's hating is equivalent to murder. It's equal to murder. Wow. The hard attitude. Ah, Sermon on the Mount. You know where that's at. Matthew 5, right? 21 and 22. Jesus... Uh, says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Then Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. 
Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... Stop there. He's, he's just saying, if you have a hatred here, you don't even, you don't even hit the guy. <laughs> you, know, you don't kill him, you don't hit him, you don't do any damage to him physically, but you have it right here, you have murdered. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. John says here in verse 15, I've got a feeling he heard that teaching from Jesus directly, don't you think? I'm sure he heard it. Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure he knew that well. It must have been preached many times or maybe in different formats and what have you. But um, for, You fool. Empty-headed. Uh, making a judgment upon somebody and that's done in a very harsh, hateful way. Uh, terrible attitude. Now, the uh, murder is conceived in the heart. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, all of those comes from the inside. Jesus often spoke about that. Out of that comes, uh, out of your heart flows all of these actions. So hate is as much as murder as the very act. Boy, I think Jesus made it very clear on that. 16 and 17. Now, he's going to be speaking positive as we go along through here about the ones who love, but at the same time, he's speaking about the hatred. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. That's how we know it. Christ laid down his life. Sacrifice, right? And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here's what we ought to do because Christ did it for us. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So John says something that James says. And um, but I got a feeling the, the very early church, they had to practice this. For one thing, they had to practice out of necessity because so many of them were in deep need. And in Jerusalem, there was... Um, um, I guess you could say an economic crisis that was going there. And so I think John probably experienced a lot of these things. Maybe they, he was able to give out of uh, uh, maybe some of the riches that he had. James knew that as, as he uh, preached there in Jerusalem. Of course, John took it out and went on out and later went to, to Ephesus and maybe other places. But, uh, of course, he definitely went to uh, an island called Patmos Took a little vacation there, forced to, but uh, as he was exiled, um, they just don't have concerns for others' needs. They they don't really care about that. They have a lack of love for others. Maybe they don't go around hating people in a real obvious way, but they don't care. They're indifferent, different to people's needs. You go back to John 15, verse 13. We get the vine and the branches teaching there. And then he, Jesus starts talking about believers and how they're to treat each other. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Oh, by the way, you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you. <laughs> if you're really a true Christian... You will. You will do that if you're really a Christian. But um, John says something that's very similar there, doesn't he? About laying down a life in verse 16. And uh, then he comes right back here and uses something that uh, James would use too. Look at James 2. James 2, 15 and 17. 
If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is the profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I think James is saying something that John would be saying there. What a test! I think that's a pretty demanding test. If we see somebody in need, we don't need it, we are being very disobedient. I think that that's quite a, an effort uh, that has to, to be done sometimes that would be maybe something would be uh, maybe a little bit hard for us. But if we look at Christ and His supreme example and laying down His life. So on this test, um, makes it pretty clear. It brings up murder. And uh, he shows that uh, just even having it in the heart is murder and they're not concerned for others. Well, that's a pretty good test to see if one's a Christian or not. They might say the right things. They might have right doctrine. But that's why this social test or this love test is very key also. From 18 through 24, not necessarily specifically dealing with love, but it kind of is. What we're going to see is it's like he talks to the little children here now, uh, believers. And he shows the benefits of love. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deeds and truth. He sums that up. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is, is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. John is easy to read, isn't he? And you look at the Gospel of John. Why is it that um, usually when we see a new believer, the first thing that we want to give them, or even a, one who's maybe checking things out, we like to give them a Gospel of John or give them a Bible and say, oh, read the book of John. I mean, because he is so clear, so easy, but the depth behind it is incredible too, because you as a Christian, every time you read his work, you go, wow, this is really deep, even though it's simple. Well, that's what he's doing here in First John. He's making it, I think, very clear. Um, but, you know, as we, we have benefits because we have love. Uh, because we, we love Christ and we love others, one another. Um, Jonathan Edwards, going back to that um, book dealing with um, the affections, religious affections, he said this, the first component of religious affections is one, and manifesting what true salvation is is that they have love for Christians. That's the first way. That's what Edward says. I think he's probably kind of going along there with John here. He's saying that they will love uh, other people. They have not only a zeal for holiness, we already talked about that, right? But they'll have a zeal to meet the needs of other Christians non-Christians. Um, and it might even be people that you would never really want to have anything to do with. And when you become a Christian, it's like 
things change so much that you actually find yourself loving those people who before you wouldn't have even been around with or been seen with. What happened? (laughs) There's been such a transformation in us that now we're thinking and doing things that we would not have done before. Isn't that incredible? That's a work of God that's doing it. Believe it or not, you may look at your life and say, I just don't see anything happening. But I'll tell you what, God's at work, isn't He? He's always changing us. And He he changes that heart about about others. But uh, if one had to deal with doubt, for instance, here in verse 18, which he knew they did, and, and young Christians especially have that, but anybody can do that. He says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before truth before him. And say, Well, yeah, but I, do, I still don't know. I'm not for sure if I'm a Christian. Well, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He's writing to who? The little children. I think here he's coming over and saying, Okay. I want to give you a little encouragement. And they can say, you know what? I'm not so sure. I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I feel so dirty. It seems like everything that I, I do, it, just, it doesn't seem like I'm growing in Christ. It doesn't even seem like I'm honoring Him. I'm just, a, I'm just a mess. And you know they're Christians. And they have shown it down through the years. But they, they start saying these things. They look at things. And he says, okay, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Greater is He who is in you. He's going to say that in a moment too, isn't He? So, even our thoughts and our, the things we say sometimes cannot align maybe with the truth. Sometimes we just, we're so downcast by it all, we could almost just, you know, say, I'm, I'm tired of it. We really can't do that. But even if we get to that point, God is greater than our heart. His truth is much better than our feelings. What's happening there is our feelings are going way over what the truth is. And that happens. Our, our feelings can go up and down. Our feelings don't even forget things, do they? Sometimes they bring up things in the past that you thought were gone, and all of a sudden it's there staring at you in the face, and the guilt comes up. And you know. But here he says, God is greater than that. He knows all things. Now, if it was an unbeliever and they're, you know, they're saying this, well, maybe they need to be tested out. I think John has been giving the test all along. Uh, I would be convinced that because he's saying my little children, as he's speaking to them, that he's speaking to a Christian here. He says, but the next verse is kind of interesting. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if we're not feeling guilty about it and such, we have confidence toward God. That's like I can think of Second uh, Peter, where it lists a bunch of things. And if you do these things, you know, practicing love and, and many other things, righteousness and that kind of thing, then, and, and knowledge, well, let's go to read it. No. <laughs> then you're not short sighted. You actually can see the things. But if you're not practicing those things at that moment, you can be short sighted and all of a sudden you can't see very good what God has done in your life. <laughs> so I think John is. Uh, is giving some confidence to them. He says, you can have confidence toward God. And so one thing that we have, because we love God and we love our neighbors, we have the benefit of assurance of salvation. Again, I think John is is putting that in here, saying we have confidence 
First uh, John four seven. He's going to give it again. Uh, we'll be in this next week. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So you could ask that person, hey, do you, do you love that brother over there? Do you love that brother over there? How about that brother there? And they said, well, yes. Do you remember some of the things that you used to do for them and you have done? You know? Why did you do that? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I do love them. You know, It's, it's good to know. Well, uh, John will say, well, you are of God. You're born of God. You've been converted. And you have that forever. God's acquittal, uh, you know, regardless uh, of the doubts, is always there. He has justified us. Look at the past acts that God has done in you. There is proof there. Think of what Christ will do. Now the next benefit is is prayer. Answered prayer. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We have access to God and Prayer is an evidence of submission to God because we're wanting to go to Him. We're wanting to confess. We're wanting to adore Him. We want to um, uh, go as a priest uh, for other people, praying for them. But what are the requirements here? Well, obedience and doing what pleases God, which He graces in us. God wants us to have confidence when we pray, doesn't He? Um, John 16. John learned a lot from Jesus whenever he walked with him those three years. I would think he picked up some things all the time. I'm sure they were uh, wondering some of the things, what he was saying. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It's, the reason you'll get it answered is because you are asking the same things that Jesus would ask for. If you're in tune with that, then you'll be praying the right things. Now, a lot of times we have the wrong kind of prayers. And we're asking really for our will to be done. <laughs> and we're asking for things that may not necessarily be what God's will is. Sometimes we're not for sure. And, and that's why we can qualify by saying, but Lord, we want your will, right? And, uh, but if we ask something that's inconsist- that is consistent with what Christ would ask for, we're going to get that answered every time. We have that promise. That's a great benefit, isn't it? What's the, pr- uh, the third one? The third benefit is found in verse 23 and 24 back in 1 John. And this is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us His commandment. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one who affects, affects this. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us and then keeps on generating us so that we can believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and so that we can love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, right? So believing, loving, obeying, it's the power of God's Spirit. That's evidence of true salvation. Okay, the last one, the last test now is chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And it's dealing with truth. What are, what are our tests been so far? Righteousness, 
versus sin. What's the second one? Love versus what? Hate. And now, truth versus error. So John keeps that same theme going all the way through. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That's pretty simple, isn't it? And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcame them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Another test. Pretty simple. John says, test them. Test to see if these people really are of God. Um... The word is dakimazo. It's related to that. Which, uh, kind of a metaphor, uh, you could be using it for different reasons, but you could use it to test people uh, if they were going to be running for some kind of office or uh, maybe some kind of prominent job that they were going to get into so they would run a test to see if they were legitimate to be able to do that kind of job. And so that's where the word uh, dakimazo was would be that uh, John brings forth here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but dakimazo the spirits. Okay, it sounds like this could be a spiritual thing they're saying here. I'm not so sure whether it's right or wrong. Whenever I first made the the first few statements that were absolutely false, and you guys caught that really quickly because you're already laughing uh, or going, wow. (laughs) Uh, But... um, I would never want to go into a room full of people and introduce myself that way right off the bat without them already kind of knowing me. But you'd be testing me. Uh, what's he going to say after this, right? <laughs> what, what is he saying here? Because what he just said was absolutely wrong. Okay, so uh, we test them. Uh, a good way to start with, and really, i found you don't have to know a lot about the cults. It's good to educate yourself. But if you know the Scripture, you know the real, then you don't have to spend all your time studying counterfeits. Although if you can take a few minutes and see at least some basic ideas, you might know how to to deal with them or talk with them a little bit better. But it's going to come down to Scripture anyway. And and we're not going to be able to uh, use apologetics in a way we're going to reason them without Scripture, are we? I mean, this this is where it's at. It's about Christ. What's their Christology? What do they believe about Jesus Christ? If they say that he is not God, immediately you can put it into your mind, this person is an unbeliever. I mean, without a doubt. If they start saying some things that, well, he had, he sinned. You know, Mary Magdalene and, and such. You know, there, there have been movies that, that come out. And immediately right there, we know right off the bat. You know, the, whatever they say about Christ, his nature or his person, 
and his work. Uh, does the cross, what does the cross mean to them? And so uh, Christ is really where I think the, uh, the, the fundamental doctrine to hit at would start with the incarnation, for instance. Do they believe that Jesus Christ actually uh, came in the flesh, was, was born of Mary? That's why we have the creeds, you know, for instance. That uh, they're, they're basic, but if somebody doesn't believe that and they don't want to believe it, then you can't bring them into the church, can you? You say, here's what we believe about Christ. Um, I think real false teachers want to attack the person of Christ. I have never seen a cult that has ever believed in the person or the work of Christ uh, the way an Orthodox church would be. I, have, I don't think a cult ever would have the right view of Christ. You guys know of any? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the, the bottom line right there. You, you test them, first of all, their, their view of Christ. What about regeneration? How one is saved? What, what did Christ do at the cross? Did He take away the sin there? And uh, uh, talking about uh, placing our trust in Christ and you know the, all those basic elements. That's, that's how you can work with a, a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, did we get our sin taken away there or do we have to add works? All cults add works. They might believe in, in the person, in the name of Jesus, but then what they're going to do is add things on to it. Are we saved by grace alone? You know, by, by that work of Christ. Um, we've overcome that all that kind of stuff that's what he's saying here uh, you know the spirit of God and if every spirit confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh okay we know that, that that's true every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not a God the Gnostics didn't believe that he really came in the flesh did they so he attacks right at that avenue John does and shows them right off the bat you don't have to know a whole lot it's good. The more you know of Scripture, the more that you then can retain and bring forth and, and hit with the truth, as, as that book right there. Dug down deep. Right? Our theme for the night, dug down deep. <laughs> but we've overcome that kind of stuff. We've overcome the world, haven't we? Um, and again, it's the spirit of Antichrist that's in them. It's demonic. Any kind of teaching, any kind of doctrine out there that's not... Christianity, based upon Scripture, is demonic. It comes from the devil. And uh, as, as he's saying here, uh, uh, of the Antichrist. But verse 4 says, you've overcome them. Because he who is in you, greater is he who is in you than he is in the world, right? As he's kind of already stated. Um, so, God's truth, I think, uh, it must be guarded. It's always under attack. It's relentless. And we are the ones representing the Word of God. And the ones who are the Christians, uh, what they do is they speak the Word of God. The ones who are not might use some Scripture, but then listen carefully or read between where their lines are at, really where are they going at this, uh, how, how important is Scripture to them? They might have some Scriptures memorized and you say, man, these guys know a lot of stuff. Yeah, but they don't know what's in between. They just know those certain verses that they were taught. So when they go out and try to witness, they, they might overwhelm a lot of so-called Christians. People go to church. Say, you know, and actually, that's, that's who the people they're really aiming at. The people who've been in church that don't know anything. And they attack at that, don't they? Doctrines of demons. And that's the seduction. 
What do they say about Christ? What do they say about regeneration? What do they say about the Word of God? So before you accept any teaching, be sure of their view on on those elements. Uh, Do they submit to the Word of God? By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The test. I think John has made it very clear, hasn't he? Very up front. That's right. The lingo is is uh, very much some of the same words that we would use. Anybody have any any other comments? Well, thank you guys for coming out on a winter night. <laughs> that is. We're in the spring, aren't we? It'll be a last time. That's right.